I think we are lacking in some serious worldview perspective when it comes to these issues. Everyone is part of the problem, this sense of entitlement that we keep on going back to, whether it's available food or cheap electronics. It all comes down to our demands impacting our lifestyles. And I think there's a disconnect there, which is unfortunate. So, welcome back to Suspect. This is episode three. We're doing this again. We are actually on schedule. We are continuing what we set out to do. Back with the post-its, back with the whiteboard. Something that we got really lucky with and we've been able to run with this topic thus far was the issue of the Supreme Court. We started out with the idea of the Supreme Court voting down President Obama's moratorium on emissions from power plants. So that got shut down the Supreme Court and we were wondering how that was gonna play out. Immediately after we had our first episode, all of a sudden, Justice Antonin Scalia dies. Luckily. Luckily, we're, okay. Luckily, so Scalia we, died. We, we do know that he was a no vote. I never like to cheer when someone's dying. That's a very sad thing, but it definitely shifts the conversation. It shifts the ability of the Supreme Court to actually enact positive change when it comes to issues of environmental health and safety. What just recently happened actually was President Obama came forth and he has nominated existing justice Merrick Garland. So Merrick Garland is an appeals court judge in Washington DC. He was originally appointed by President Clinton and a lot of people are seeing him as kind of boring, kind of safe. I mean, safe in that I think that it's sort of a way for Barack Obama to challenge uh, them to block him from actually getting nominated, which they've sworn that they are going to do, or is block pretty much every nomination. And I think so maybe he's safe, but really he's just appealing on all accounts because he's fairly middle of the road. He has a lot of experience. So Obama's just daring them to block his nomination. Yeah, and I guess if they do, if they do decide to block it, it shows, I guess, the American public that maybe the GOP and maybe the Senate, which is GOP-controlled, doesn't actually have everyone's best interests in mind. That they're just so committed to thwarting anything that Barack Obama wants to accomplish, basically. Which we have spoke of in the past. Yes. We'll see what happens. It's maybe in two weeks we're going to be still talking about this. We don't know. Are they going to try to sit on their hands for a while and just not do anything? Are they going to vote them down? Are they going to go into special appeals? We don't know. I think what they're talking about is waiting until after the election is over. I don't know that that's actually going to happen, but we'll see. The next thing up on our docket is the primaries. America's favorite bad boy, Donald Trump. Pretty much. So Donald Trump right now is sitting at 678 delegates won. Out of 1,273? Yes. 
you have that number down. Got it. And then Ted Cruz is trailing at 423. There's a decent disparity between that. And then we have John Kasich, of course, at 143. There's huge disparity among the candidates now. We're down to three candidates. We have, what did we start out with? Like 14? The original GOP debates, it was like a party on stage. Pretty much. So Trump is sitting with 678 delegates. You need the 1237, but there's still 1,049 available. The scary part about that is that Kasich could win almost all of the thousand plus delegates left and still not have enough for automatic nomination. So what's looking like it's going to happen is we're going to have a, con a contested a convention at the RNC where Donald Trump, if he is elected as being the candidate, they're not going to endorse him as the Republican candidate. This is what me and David were just discussing. So we, we don't know yet. It's There's talk about it. David says that if... Trump, if it is contested that Kasich is going to be the Republican Party nominee, the candidate. Maybe. I don't know. It'll, I think a lot of people would rather see Cruz there, but I think GOP party leadership sees Kasich as the best way to beat a democratically nominated Hillary Clinton. Do you think California will vote for Trump? I mean, like, do you think Trump is going to win California in the primary is what I'm saying. David's from California. I don't know if you guys knew that. <laughs> no, I, I really don't think that Trump will get California. Ultimately, I think what's happening is there is so much uncertainty in the political realm now that we are starting to lose sight of certain topics that, that were hot-button issues in previous elections. We're not talking about climate change anymore. For a little bit, Martin O'Malley was trying to bring the conversation that way, but it kind of just fell by the wayside. We are no longer talking about environmental factors. We are no longer talking about anything related to sustainability. And now I think there's such a focus on Trump, which is his game plan. And I think that that plays into a lot of people's fears, either for or against. Ultimately, that's something I think we're going to have to deal with in the future is we ignored a lot of issues because of grandstanding, which I don't think is healthy for the political process. And I don't think it's healthy for progress. You, you think that's true on the Democratic side? Obviously, on the Republican side, I mean, it's literally a dick measuring contest. It's insane. But didn't you see, did you see the debate that took place in Flint? Because I think that's the other thing. We continuously have been talking about what's going on in Flint, Michigan. But that they held a Democratic debate in Flint, Michigan. And that was a huge topic of conversation mm -hmm. of like, what do we do to fix this infrastructure? What went wrong here? That They're at least talking about that in regards to environmental health and safety. I don't think I've heard a lot of discussion about climate change. You're right. And then we have the Sanders-Clinton campaign going on with... Right now, Clinton has 1,614 delegates compared to Sanders' 856 out of the 2,383 that are needed. So right now, I don't know if we can honestly say that it's anyone's race. Um, I do believe that California and New York will go to Hillary Clinton, which will pretty much solidify her place. California has over 450 delegates. Right there, that puts her at... 2,000 delegates, and she can easily clean house with New York over that.
I sat down with Manelli Daku. She is a SUMA student as well. She's also an engineer with an engineering consulting firm here in New York. We sat down, we talked about her background, where she's from, how she came to this program, how she came to this interest in sustainability, and we had a great conversation, and we'll be bringing that to you next. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Hello, everyone. <laughs> You've listened to the first two episodes. How did you find them? I thought they were great. I thought it's so funny listening to the first one. I was, I was like, okay, well, I'm glad that I'm not the only one thinking these things. So it's that's one thing about this program that I found so far that with a lot of, I mean, I love my friends. I have very, very diverse group of friends outside, well, within the program too, but also outside the program. And the conversations that we have about sustainability or about green issues or about politics typically go very different route than the conversations that you and Hillary and Avantika have had. So this is great. Good job, guys. Well, thank you. <laughs> so we're going to start out just a bit on your background. So you are a native New Yorker, kind of. Kind of. So I was born in the Dominican Republic and I lived there till I was eight. Um, I come from a very, very, very small town in the middle of nowhere in the northern portion of the Dominican Republic. Uh, picture farm life, um, <laughs> no electricity, no paved roads. We had beautiful rivers though. That's where we used to go get water. That's where we used to go wash clothes. Thinking about it now, it's kind of like crazy. Like I used to wash clothes in a river. Uh, <laughs> and uh, But no, and then we moved to New York, not very far from here, actually. Well, not very far from campus. Grew up on Morningside, which was an interesting neighborhood growing up. It was very, very different. A lot more minorities, a lot of Latinos and African-Americans. It was great. It was great growing up there. We lived a block away from Central Park. We had the train right there. I can't complain. And then, you know, living life as a young kid in New York, kind of learn to adapt, you grow. Now the New York school system is a lot different than what I'm used to in that you pretty much chose where you were going to go to high school. Is that correct? Oh yeah. So actually in New York, I don't know if that's the case anymore, but back then your elementary school was designated based on where you lived. So that was automatic. But then your junior high school, actually, you got to apply to and choose as well. Uh, so I ended up going to middle school um, a little bit further south on like the, in the 90s, which was interesting because I just kept traveling further south. Uh, and then in high school, when the application process came came about, you know, you have your specialized high schools, which we still have to this day you know, application process and the exams. Didn't get into them. It was fine. But I, I did end up going to what was at the time one of the better math and science focused high schools. It's actually an environmentally focused high school. So it's high school for environmental studies. And that really was the foundation for any environmental related anything that I think I've developed and I've grown into in the last you know, 15 years. And then you went to college after that at what is now part of NYU, correct? Right. So I went all the way out to Brooklyn for college. <laughs> so far. So far. 
it was great. I mean, it was hard. I did engineering, so I have a civil engineering degree, which is great. I think there are specific things that I learned in engineering that I I still use on a daily basis. Very broad things like analytical thinking and problem solving and being thrown a situation or a given issue and not being overwhelmed by them, kind of thinking on a process based and on how to address problems. So that foundation was good, but engineering was just brutal, brutal. But do you think those cognitive abilities that you were trained in and were fostered in your education, do you think that comes through now in your focus for what you want to be doing both now and in the future? It, it definitely does. Now, so I, I, I did a civil engineering degree mostly because my school didn't have an environmental engineering program. I Since, again, since high school, environmentally focused, I remember in our high school was, we started a very intensive like recycling program. We had a green roof. We had a garden in the roof of our high school, which, you know, people, you know, the students maintained. And we had all these other exposures to environmental studies and environmental issues that a lot of people don't don't have at that at that age. So when I went to college, I, I, I did want to do engineering mostly because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I still don't know what I want to do with my life. Um, but I knew it was a good foundation. I knew it was a good place to start. And um, you can't go wrong with an engineering degree, I guess. But I did want to do something more environmentally focused. Now, what where it's led me now is that it's kind of a good and a bad thing. But whenever I hear a problem or whenever I'm, I'm thinking of some of the issues that we're dealing with now, I'm always thinking of on a mathematical or on a numbers based how it can be solved. So, I'll, you know, which is kind of kind of traps you a little bit because I'm always thinking like, can this really be done? Like, does do the do the the numbers work out? Does the money work out? Do the costs work out? Do the benefits work out? Yeah, the the quantitative side of engineering is still something that I think will apply in my life probably forever. Now, one thing because both my parents are engineers, and one thing that my father told me was engineering kind of takes the magic out of a lot of life and that you're able to break things down to a much more fundamental level. Oh yeah. While some people have this awe and wonder at certain natural phenomenon, you can look at it through the lens of engineering and go, well, I know how that works. And while it's really cool, it's not as magical per se as some people would purport it to be. Yeah, I'm definitely the party pooper. (laughs) I will definitely, (laughs) you know, pinch some bubbles and, kind of a, a reality check for a lot of for a lot of things but at the same time though over the years or the older that I get I feel like I embrace that pers- the different perspective a little bit better and I'm actually much more welcoming to the non-quantitative side of things to anything that's not numbers to talk about issues without necessarily you know focusing the attention on the numbers but at the same time it has also made me super super skeptical about everything that I read, everything that I hear. You know, I can't watch the news or, or you know, listen to some um, politician talking about all these things that they're going to be changing or all these things that they're going to, going to be doing because I'm always thinking, your numbers are probably not squared away. I don't think that you've really thought this through. Kind of, it makes it a little bit more jaded. I, I can't necessarily just take feedback or take process information without really questioning. What were your assumptions? Do I think that you did the work correctly? 
And then in the end, are you presenting the results how you want to present them? Or are you presenting them because you know how to manipulate numbers? Now, do you think that at least some people in our realm, in our program, or just in sustainability in general, tend to focus just on the positive numbers? Because I know this is an issue in every situation. People like to have the numbers on their side. It's great to be able to point at some charts and graphs and go, here it is. But I know from experience, it's not always that cut and dry. So do you think that having at least your background and this this cognitive ability that you've been trained up in, do you think that's beneficial at least in reinforcing some of the things that we already know? Or do you find that sometimes that kind of unbridled optimism is overshadowing of what may actually be happening? I think it can go both ways. I think that obviously whoever is putting together a report or whoever wants to get the public to do something or get your your politicians or your government to take action on something can obviously slice and dice the numbers in a way that's going to paint that picture. Now, that's you know, sometimes that's a good thing. It it's it's a good thing in some instances because sometimes people need to be scared. People sometimes people need to be shocked. You know, sometimes people need that perspective to act. But I don't agree with not being straightforward about the fact that in reality, when you look at the data, you may not necessarily reach those numbers, but a worst case scenario is what I'm telling you about. And I think that a lot of entities do a really, really poor job at very clearly identifying that what you're presenting is a worst case. I mean, some of the things that are coming to my mind right now are um, some of the projections, some of the climate change projections. Taking a climate course here last semester, learned a lot about what goes into those models and, and learned a lot about the the give and take. And there's a room of error for, for all of these models. And at the end of the day, they're just models, right? So I'm, I'm very, very skeptical whenever I see somebody present these results as being, you know, being the truth, being everything. Why, you know, I, I run models myself. I, you know, do models at work and in my current profession. And I know that crap in, crap out. If the assumptions that you make when you were you know, putting together your models were not validated or maybe they were messed around with or played with, or maybe you, know, you didn't have as much data as you thought you did, so you decided to fill in those blanks, you get some very interesting you know, outputs. And then, <laughs> so whenever I see these reports, I'm always interested in seeing what they're comparing that record against, right? How far do these records go that you're comparing? So how far is your historical average or mean or whatever it is that you're comparing to. And a lot of the times, as soon as you start digging into those records, you're like, okay, well, obviously we didn't have data for all of existence. So you use some sort of, you know, extrapolation or interpolation to try to figure out what happened before then. So you can compare some of these numbers. So those are the types of things that I just can't necessarily just take in at, at face value. I always have to question. It's like, uh, do I believe the assumptions that you made? Maybe, maybe not, but. I'm gonna reverse a little bit here. So coming out of college, you had a degree in civil engineering and you knew that at least your background had strong environmental leanings. Did you know that you always wanted to at least try to end up in an environmentally related field? I know currently your job touches on that sometimes, 
but not as much as you may like. Right. Coming out of college, so I graduated in 2009. Shitty, shitty economy. It was awful. So I had started interning at my company the, the summer before. When I, so I found out about this, you know, internship through one of my classmates and they, they came, they told me about it because it was with the environmental people. <laughs> it's like, oh, do you want an internship with the environmental people at an engineering consulting firm in Midtown Manhattan? Now, engineering consulting, especially the company, not necessarily as much anymore or as much anymore from my perspective, because I know very diverse selling points that the company has or very you know we have a very very diverse group of skills coming out of coming out of um when i was still a junior in in college it was like okay well why the hell not i mean i need some work experience i'll work at an engineering firm it'll you know give my degree some use and hopefully if it is with the environmental people quote unquote it'll eventually take me to a trajectory or to a down path um that'll help me figure out whether this is something that i really want to focus on or whether this is just not not for me. When I joined the engineering consulting world, um, it was very, very interesting. And still the, the, the group that I'm with today, although I've done a lot of very diverse projects, is the environmental planning group within the transportation department. So a majority of our projects have been transportation related. And when you talk about environmental planning, it's just a lot of studies, just assessing the potential impacts that this proposed project has in the neighborhood or has on air quality or traffic or noise or whatever. It, it was really interesting actually to learn about all that stuff. I actually had no idea that you actually had to go through all of these hoops to get a project approved, especially if you were talking like a, a big development. Learning that there's that side has actually opened up my eyes to a lot of different things that are going on in New York City specifically, mostly just because so much of my work has been in New York City. But, you know, I know where to look. There's a lot of interesting information on the internet. The internet, <laughs> if, you, if you search, you will find some very, very interesting studies. So yes, I mean, the engineering degree definitely has helped or kind of reinforced the environmental path, I guess, that eventually I've been taking. Thank you again for coming. Really appreciate it. I think we had a really great chat. Thanks for listening. Oh, of course. And yeah, thank you for your insight and all the great things that you said about the podcast too. Oh yeah, you guys are great. Keep doing it. She's one of my favorites, dude. So next up, something that I wanted to focus on, at least for a little bit, is Trump's insistence on bringing jobs back, bringing industry back. In all honesty, I don't see any real issue with advocating for American jobs and American ingenuity and industrialism. I can't argue with that, especially because that ties in very strongly to a lot of my own ideals, both economically and politically. I do try to support locally grown 
produce. I try to support American-made, locally-made goods and services, and I think that's very valuable, especially in the context of sustainability. Well, I was just going to say that that initiative is already taking place, that whole like reshoring initiative that I was talking about with companies like GE. They opened a manufacturing uh, plant somewhere in Kentucky at some point, I think in like 2012. Walmart has been investing more in American manufacturing for its products. That's already taking place. That's industry is growing a little bit. I don't think it's going to like blow up or anything. But yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think that it is a positive thing to want to, to manufacture in America. And that I think that's already an effort that's taking place. Also, I wanted to establish what it is about sustainable ideals that is important about locally sourcing things. It's the idea that whatever product you're talking about, whether it's agriculture or whatever, um, is not traveling that far. So you are reducing carbon emissions with having locally sourced goods and services. Granted, with the advent of super tankers and shippers that are just on this massive scale now, it's not that expensive and doesn't have as intensive a carbon footprint to ship stuff to and from China because of these massive super tankers. Once you get them up to speed per unit that they carry, the carbon emissions aren't as great as they used to be especially compared to air travel. But at the same time, we have so much rail line and freight travel within the United States, it's hard to make that argument that even though this is far more efficient than it used to be, shipping stuff to and from China on these super carriers, it's still not as good as local commerce and communities. Mm -hmm. And kind of the idea that a sustainable community is one where basically you're producing and sharing resources within that community. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like the idea is being able to produce and consume all within like the same small radius, basically. But where's the line between having this global economy, which is enriching to everyone? I think that is a reasonable thing to say that the global economy and the economies of scale do benefit a lot of people. But if we're focusing on locally sourced goods and services, at what point do we become too insular? At what point do we become nationalistic to the extent that some see Donald Trump as? And I don't think that there's a hard line here. I think it's a very fuzzy area, but it is hard to extrapolate these ideas and these ideologies from the associated xenophobia that Donald Trump brings. And so it's hard for me to fault people who get excited when Donald Trump says, let's do all these things to make America great again. Really hard to argue against American jobs and labor and success. The way that it's being talked about right now, I think is detrimental to the process, as I've said before. I think it is stirring up a lot of hate and resentment, but ultimately, I don't think that any voter in the United States wants to destroy American ideas and values, and they honestly feel that what they are doing is the best for them. How do we include them in the conversation? Because sustainability, as we've established, does not exist in a vacuum. It exists in tandem with existing industry and it serves to enhance, not to stand on its own. So how do we get this buy-in? How do we get the family buy-in? How do we link it to family values, as we were saying in the previous episode? And how do we get people excited about sustainability in regards to their daily lives when their immediate concern may not directly 
deal with sustainability, but definitely has a sustainability aspect to it. But it's because it affects all aspects of life. It's really a matter of like making it more accessible as a conversation. Like how we're talking about sustainability, that term. When you hear it, I think that people shut off and they don't really understand what it means. And it's being talked about so much. And so it's kind of like we have to create the language that's accessible for the whole thing. It ties into everybody's lives. But I don't know. It's like you're saying, tying it into family values. I think that was a really solid point. Because I hadn't necessarily thought about that. Like what is the tactic to get people to care about sustainable issues and... It really is. It's because America is so intrinsically linked to family values. That's such an important part of America and its whole like its whole ideology is all about the family, the nuclear family. The more I study and read into sustainability and the more I interact with it, the more I see these direct linkages, although they may be slightly convoluted. But that may not be apparent to everyone. So I'm almost at a loss with trying to, I don't want to say convince because it once again puts us at this us versus them mentality, but how does that conversation happen without riling people up in these negative, xenophobic, racist instances? You're looking at me, I don't have the answers. I have no idea. Well, I mean, it, I think that's why it's unfortunate that it's not um, in the spotlight in this political campaign because I think that that is one way to get everyone talking about certain issues. The fact that climate change isn't really being discussed in, is like kind of a missed opportunity, I think, to start a national discussion and to really under start to analyze how sustainable concepts could benefit everyone no matter what, you know, how much money you make in a year or where you live. Exactly. And with that, I think we're going to end this episode. So this was episode three. Thank you again for tuning in. A lot of exciting things happening, both with this show, with politics, with sustainability. And we thank you for your continued support. Thank you. All right. That it? Yep. Signing out. As always, I'd like to give a big thank you to our musical benefactor, Zale. Zale provides the intro and outro music for this podcast. You can find those tracks and more by Zale at www.soundcloud.com slash justzale. That's J-U-S-T-Z-A-Y-L-E. Additional music this episode came from Adriana Kariki. You can find her new EP available at freemusicarchive.org. You can also find us on Twitter, tweeting at Suspect. In addition, we were recently featured on the Columbia University School of Professional Studies website. We were interviewed by Grace Bellow, and she has a great piece up about Hillary and I. So go check it out. We'll link that down below in the description.
I don't know why I keep on saying tuning in because people don't have radios it's anymore. It's so funny. And it's a podcast. So yeah. it's like, like I keep having you explain a podcast to my mom. She's like, so it's like a video. And I'm like, no, it's like a radio station sort of that you listen to on the internet.